Freedom doesn't need more cheerleaders shouting partisan slogans. It needs thoughtful, principled disciples of liberty. Deep down, we all know that freedom and liberty matter. This is where we discuss why they matter. It's time to elevate the discussion. Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Hey, welcome to the Loving Liberty program. And yes, things like liberty do matter. Principles do matter. And uh, you know what? Elections do matter, too. That's the, the title of a uh, recent commentary from Eric Peters, who joins me on this Tuesday. Eric, so great to have you with me again. Oh, thank you, Brian. Good to be here. Well, you know, Donald Trump has uh, been in the news a lot lately, and, and uh, there's quite a frenzy going on. But un, unseen to a lot of people, there's something very laudable that the president did recently, and I only knew about it because I happened to read your commentary. Clue us in on, on what, what did the orange man do that, uh, that actually improved our, our freedoms? Well, last week, he decided to rescind a fatwa, I like to use that term, that had been hurled during the Obama administration that would have tripled, tripled almost, federal gas guzzler taxes, which are applied to cars that don't meet the federal mandatory minimum mileage the government decrees all cars must achieve. Uh, And the importance of this can't be understated um, because it takes the teeth out of another Obama-era fatwa, that decrees that all new cars, the mileage that they must achieve, be near doubled within the next six years. So effectively what it would have done is forced the entire car industry to do a parking brake 180 and build almost nothing other than Toyota Priuses and hybrids and electric cars, because those are the only vehicles that can average close to 50 or more miles per gallon, uh, and they would be the only kinds of cars that the car industry could sell for economic reasons because these fines would have made other kinds of cars catastrophically expensive to build and impossibly expensive for most people to buy. And it's important, you point out in, in your article that, um, you know, this this great gas mileage, yeah, people appreciate it because they don't like to pay more at the pump. But the bottom line is this is not a result of the consumer saying, hey, automakers, make us cars that get, you know, 50 miles per gallon. This is strictly government dictating, no, you're going to have to do this. Well, it's not just that. It's also government eliminating choice. One of the uh, fallacies behind the government mandates is that the car industry won't build fuel-efficient cars unless the government mandates it. That's simply not true. There are a number of cars that you can buy right now, including the Prius and several other models that are in that same general class of vehicle, uh, that do average more than 50 miles per gallon. So they're available for those who want them. Great. You know, people who want that, who value fuel economy uber alles, uh, are, are at liberty to go out and buy them. But other people might value other attributes more. They might want a larger vehicle because they have a big family, let's say. Uh, or they want more power and they want more performance. Um, or they want to be able to pull a trailer. And what the government seeks to do is to deny people that choice and force them into these little cars that get gas mileage, uber alles. And I think that that's a very authoritarian and thus immoral thing to do. So how does government uh, make it stick then? When they, when they put down this fatwa, you will have to make a car that gets at least this much miles per yeah. gallon, or else uh, what do they do, find them? Yeah, that's, that's where we get back to these gas guzzler taxes. There's something called CAFE, C-A-F-E, and it's an acronym that stands for Corporate Average Fuel Economy. And that's a, a bureaucratic rigmarole for these arbitrary edicts that the government passes, and it's been doing it since the 70s, that mandate that uh, a given car company's fleet of vehicles must average a certain number. And this started back in the 70s, and the average then was around 22 miles per gallon. Now it's about 35 miles per gallon that they have to average. 
And if they don't meet that average, then these gas guzzler fines, as they style them, uh, are applied to the car manufacturers. And, of course, what do the car manufacturers do? They just transfer those fines, uh, they fold them into the cost of the vehicle, and pass them on to the car buyer. So your more efficient car costs you more money. And if you think about it, if the point of this exercise is to save money, you don't really save any money if you have to pay a few thousand bucks more uh, for a given car in order to get two or three miles per gallon better at the pump. So the, the fine was about to be tripled. Tell me, tell me more yes. about that. Yeah, the current fine is about $5 for every, I think it's .01 mile per gallon that the, uh, the, the fleet average uh, isn't met. And uh, it was slated to go up to $14. So, you know, in effect, a near tripling of the fines. And that would have really hit the most popular vehicles on the market, which are crossovers, SUVs, larger cars like that. Uh, because none of them are remotely capable of, of meeting even the current 35-something mile per gallon average. It's not highway. It's average. Uh, federal mandatory MPG minimum. And the other fatwa that our orange friend is attempting to fight uh, is going to raise the mandatory minimum to more than 50 miles per gallon. If you can imagine a you know big truck or an SUV, they'll never come close to averaging 50 miles per gallon. So what what are the the consequences then? I mean, what what are the choices if if those vehicles can't meet that uh, that dictated number? Uh, do they either stop manufacturing or just have to jack the price through the roof to to offset those fines? Well, they do both, and there's a reason why. Uh, modestly priced cars now are cars are much smaller than they used to be. You probably can remember when average Americans, regular people, uh, drove around in large sedans and big station wagons. Uh, those kinds of vehicles still exist. The problem is that they're all very high-end luxury cars now. Um, you know, models like a Mercedes S-Class, a BMW 7 Series, Audi A8, vehicles like that. Uh, that start around seventy or eighty thousand dollars. They're for very affluent people. They're built in very small numbers. So the manufacturers can, in that way, get around or at least deal with the gas guzzler fines because they're dealing with a different market. Um, but average people who are shopping for a car, let's say, around twenty-eight to $35,000, those people cannot afford to spend uh, another 10% uh, tacked onto the car uh, because it's a quote-unquote gas guzzler. It's really obnoxious when you think about it in concept. You're buying the car freely. You're also freely buying the gas, and I'm assuming that you're not an idiot and you realize how much gas it's going to use, and so you're exercising your judgment, using your money to buy what you want, and the government is essentially trying to countermand your freely made decisions, and I think that's outrageous. Well, and as you point out in your commentary, uh, this this isn't by accident. It's not just, oh, whoops, well, we hadn't considered that. might price you out of you know the, these uh, crossovers, SUVs, or trucks. It seems like that right. was actually the goal in the first place. Well, that is the goal. And what they're trying to do is leverage uh, the regulations to force people into electric cars and hybrids. That's the long-term agenda here. They're trying to make uh, regular cars so expensive to manufacture uh, that uh, they can't be made anymore or they can't uh, or, or to jack the price up such that they're essentially equivalent in price to an electric car. And people go, well, I guess I might as well just get the electric car. Uh, that's the macro thing that they're really, really aggressively trying to get accomplished here. So I'm going to bring this back to Trump. And, and like I was telling mm -hmm. you before we went on the air, I don't spend a lot of time talking about politicians or talking about personalities yeah. so much as principles. But there, there is a silver lining here for, for people. And I know Trump is a popular figure. Can, he, he can be brash. He can, he can be abrasive. Mm -hmm. He can be unlikable. But you mm -hmm. point out that 
this is actually something good that he has done. So if we're going to, you know, if people are going to criticize, then they, they ought to be able to recognize when something good has taken place as well. Well, it's not just good. Uh, it's something that would have been inconceivable had the uh, 2016 election turned out differently. There is no question in my mind that the tripling of the federal gas guzzler tax would remain in effect. And many other things, in fact, uh, would have remained in effect, including in effect, uh, including the shared responsibility payment applied to Obamacare refuseniks like myself. Uh, so I'm in no way uh, attempting to portray the orange man as a libertarian. However, uh, I think it's foolish uh, to reject the good by insisting on the perfect. And this, I, I'm glad this is where the conversation is going, because this is a discussion that I have in my own head quite often, you know, about um, should I hold my nose and, and go along with, with what the system is doing? Or, uh, you know, where do, I, where do I nail my theses to the door and say, here I stand, yeah. and I'm going to go no further. Sure. You, you make a very powerful case that, look, we have to work with the hand that we're dealt but that doesn't mean that we're not trying to improve things. That's right. You know, you could have principles, but you could be practical at the same time. A lot of libertarians are absolutist when it comes to voting. You know, they, they regard voting as fundamentally illegitimate. I disagree with them. If, for example, in my county there's a measure on the ballot that will increase my property taxes, I'd be an idiot uh, to not go and vote against that, wouldn't I? You know, I'm not imposing something on anybody else. I'm simply attempting to preserve my liberty to some degree, to preserve my property to some degree. It's self-defense. And that scales. It's self-defense, exactly. And, and keep in mind that all of us are under duress. It's not as though we have the choice of no evil and pure freedom. We are not offered that choice. These are the choices that we're offered. And we live in the real world, and I think it's important to be practical as well as strategic. Ironically enough, um, I, you know, I've been reading a lot about the Russian Revolution lately, and I learned something from Vladimir Ilyich Lenin. Uh, Lenin was uh, a fanatic and an ideologue, but he was also a pragmatist, and he understood the importance of taking a strategic victory, uh, taking a tactical victory, uh, in furtherance of a strategic long-term goal. And I think it's important that people who believe in freedom and liberty understand that lesson. Okay, we're going to go to break here in just a moment. Eric Peters is my guest. His website is ericpetersautos.com. I strongly recommend go check it out. We've got a lot more to talk about when we come back. And if you'd like to join us, you can actually call in and be a part of the conversation. 801-331-8113. We'll be back. This is Loving Liberty. back to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com is my guest. And we're talking a little bit about uh, President Trump today. Uh, and, and if you missed the first segment, President Trump actually did something that was very, very favorable in uh, uh, help me sum it up here. He, he rescinded the, uh, the fatwa or the, the mandate for, uh, for uh, I'm going to let you explain it, Eric, because I, I, I'll muck it up sure. if I try to. 
Oh, no worries. Well, I, of course, I like to use the term fatwa, as in uh, a religious edict, because essentially that's what it is from the, the secular ayatollahs who are in the regulatory bureaucratic apparatus. These people aren't elected by anybody, but they have power. And they issue these decrees, these fatwas, and they had simply decreed that vehicles that don't meet the current mandated minimum mile per gallon uh, that the government says all cars must meet will uh, not only be fined, but the fine will be tripled, tripled. It would have gone from $5 uh, on a certain scale uh, to as high as $14, which would have had absolutely catastrophic effects, not just on the car industry, but on you and I and everybody else who is potentially going to buy a car in the near future. All right. So in, in this, this is one of the great things that, that the president has done. There have been other things that he has done that also, um, you know, it was a year ago that the Hammond family was pardoned. Um, this was a ranching family from up in Oregon. Um, they, they were accused of violating an anti-terrorism law because they were doing a backburn on their property to, to head off a wildfire and accidentally burned about 130 acres of federal land because the wind got it, got it away from them. But they were charged with arson under an anti-terrorism statute, which had a mandatory minimum five-year prison sentence. Mm-hmm. Um, the judge at their sentencing said, I cannot in good conscience sentence you to that full sentence. That shocks the conscience. But the... Prosecutors came back, appealed to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, and the Ninth Circuit said, yeah, they should go serve the whole thing. So they were hauled back into prison after having served the original sentences, um, which were were somewhat lesser, I think a year and a half, maybe a year Mm -hmm. for both the dad and the son. That's the reason Ammon Bundy and others went up and did the uh, occupation of the Malheur Wildlife Refuge was to draw attention to the Hammond family. And a year ago, Trump pardoned them. Yeah, and, and that's really important because in criminal law, uh, there's an element to, uh, cr- to a crime, and that is intent. And clearly, these people did not intend to commit arson. It's an absurdity on the face of it. It was uh, a brush fire that got out of control, and I'm sure that they did everything they could uh, to get it back under control. But there was absolutely no intent to hurt or harm anybody. It was just an accident. And to treat it as a criminal offense is outrageous. And even after the fact, once I mean, they, they, they acknowledged, yes, it was our fault that those 130 acres burned. They paid $400,000 plus in fines, but still, you know... Shylock wanted yeah, that, that pound of flesh. Of it, you know, in a situation like that where a, an inadvertent action causes harm, you know, you didn't mean to do it, but something happened. And, and as a result of that, there was some damage. Well, it's your obligation to make whole the damage. That's, you know, that's entirely legitimate and moral. But to assign criminal culpability to that is it's 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 absolutely appalling. Well, and, and this is one of this is just one of those things that, again, I look at I look at President Trump and there's a lot about him that I'm like, Ugh. we, we yeah. could have done better. But the alternative, if it were Hillary Clinton, I'm thinking that uh, the Hammonds would still be languishing in jail. Without question. And, you know, Trump is faulted for his brusqueness and and, and frankly, for his vulgarity. He's a vulgar guy. Uh, no doubt about it. But which would you prefer, uh, the boorishness and vulgarity of the orange man or the studied, articulate, educated maliciousness and vengefulness of somebody who is uh, more articulate like Hillary Clinton? Exactly. Now, now, Trump's under a lot of pressure right now because of what the, the media is calling his, and I'm putting air quotes on this, racist tweets. Yeah. Tell me your take on this. Uh, mm-hmm. he, he called out four members of Congress who have been very active. And, and when I say members of Congress, I'm talking pretty far left members of Congress. Mm-hmm. What, what's your take on, on Trump's tweets and, and the uh, predictable media response? 
Well, I read the entirety of the tweets, which I think a lot of people haven't done but should do. And uh, I used to be an editor as well as a writer, and I saw nothing in there that was racist. He said nothing about their ethnicity, their background. Uh, what he did criticize was socialism. He talked about the fiasco in Venezuela and some of these other countries uh, that, uh, that these, these people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez et al. Uh, appear uh, to want to visit upon the United States. So the essence of his criticism uh, wasn't racial. It was political. It was ideological and philosophical. He was in his own you know, vulgar and brusque way uh, attempting to criticize uh, these virulent hard-left socialists. And nobody wants to talk about that on the left. So instead, they try to shout everybody down by accusing them of being racist because these, these, these Congress people in question happen to be female, and I think they happen to be of, of uh, South American or Central American or some form of, of Latin extraction. So they want people to focus on that and, and portray Trump as a racist bully rather than somebody who's simply trying to criticize socialism. Well, and there's, there's the whole victim mentality, which is part and parcel of identity politics and political correctness. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so I'm a victim. I'm a woman. I'm a woman of color. And he said something yeah. that disagreed with me. But I, yeah. I just this is this is so obvious. If they were really victims, would they all be sitting in Congress at this moment? Well, isn't it ironic? Yeah, exactly. Here's the country that uh, <laughs> it made it feasible, has a political system in which somebody like AOC is able uh, to throw her hat in the ring, so to speak, run for an office and be elected. Boy, she's very oppressed, don't you think? Oh, yeah. I should be so oppressed. Uh, yeah. Well, and, and, and AOC had actually had the temerity to sit there and tell us, hey, you're in the cheap seats. We're in charge here. <laughs> really? Yeah, wow. exactly. You know, America's not perfect, and there are things in the history of the country that uh, none of us uh, are proud of, but no country's history is perfect, and I think that America's history is a darn sight better than a lot of other countries' histories. And as a nation and as a people, uh, this country has bent over backwards, I think, to be fair and decent, and I think that most Americans are fair and decent. But I also think that they're getting tired of being accused of racism simply for daring to question the policies of the hard left. Well, and I, I don't know if I agree with, the, with the, the concept that Trump is this master strategist playing 4D chess and whatnot, but I have to admit, there's, there's a rift in the Democratic Party right now. They are, they are eating each other alive, and, and Trump's tweets have just brought that even further into view as now he's, he's forcing you know, the mainstream Democrats, so-called, like Biden and Pelosi, to choose sides. You're going to stand with these really radical leftist you know, freshman congresswomen? Or, you know, are you going to be more true to your Democratic base? So he's, he's kind of put yeah. them he's put them on the horns of a dilemma. He's also done something else. Uh, no establishment, heck, no Republican politician in my lifetime has ever stood up to these people and simply announced that I don't care whether you're unhappy with what I have to say. Too bad. They, they look at him with the deer in the headlights look. They don't know how to react to somebody who doesn't immediately drop to the floor, expose his belly, and beg to be kicked. <laughs> no, it's, it's true. And, and I, I don't know if you're familiar with Fred Reed. Have you ever read any of Fred's yeah, stuff? Yeah, actually, Fred is a friend of mine. Okay, well, and he's a fellow Virginian, too, I believe. He was. He grew up here. He expatted to Mexico, and he constantly urges me to leave, to flee and come to Mexico. <laughs> I, I love Fred's directness, and I think he had the best possible answer. When, when someone accuses you of racism, I mean, assuming that you're not a Klansman on your way to a torch rally yep. or something, if someone's accusing you of racism simply because you have disagreed with them, he says the best thing you can do is look him in the eye and say, so what? And watch mm-hmm. them just, blah, blah, blah. They, yeah. don't, they don't know what to say at that point. They don't. 
And, and the beauty, I think, uh, you and I talked off the air about this a little bit, is that cat call of racism is beginning to lose uh, its puissance, its power. Uh, just like being accused of being homophobic and Islamophobic and transphobic and all of that, it's nonsense. It's, it's uh, an attempt to pressure people into uh, bowing and kowtowing and exceeding uh, to an agenda that they don't agree with that has got nothing whatsoever to do with hating people because of their ethnic or racial background and everything to do with policies. Here, here. Well, Eric, we're up against the clock here, but once again, okay, I just okay. I thank you for your gift of clarity and the fact that you share it with me and my listeners each week. Um, Eric Peters, uh, the website where they can find you is? Uh, EPAutos.com. Pretty simple for once. Okay, and, and I would encourage you to take a look at his sponsors, patronize his sponsors, make a donation if you'd like, um, help keep Eric's voice out there doing what he does. And Eric, we'll look forward to talking next week. Thank you, Brian. Appreciate it. Credible, thoughtful discussion without the partisan outrage. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. 801 331 8113 is the number if you'd like to join the conversation. Really enjoyed uh, my chat with Eric Peters in the last couple of segments, and uh, I, I, there's something that Eric touched on here that I, I, I want to elaborate on just a little bit further, too. Look, I don't have to agree with every policy that Trump puts forth to appreciate the fact that uh, this is the first time within my lifetime, at least the, the, within the part of my lifetime where I've been paying attention to uh, what's happening, that I have seen a leader who dares to just speak without being, you know, cowed into submission by accusations of you're insensitive, you're racist, you're this, you're that. You know, I've, I've shared with you before the, the phrase, call me Pisher. This is a phrase that I learned reading a Paul Rosenberg uh, column, uh, which was, was to me one of, one of the most uh, mind-expanding ideas that I've encountered in a long time. And, and, and to explain, call me Pisher. Pisher is a, it's a Yiddish word that uh, literally it means someone who pees their pants. It, it talk, it's an adult, someone who is, is so useless and so just dense that they would pee their pants before they would you know, avail themselves of, of a restroom. And the idea here is when someone starts coming at you with names, when someone starts hurling accusations, trying to put you back on your heels, put you on the defensive, look them in the eye and tell them, call me Pisher. Now, if they speak Yiddish, they'll understand what you're saying is, I don't care what you call me. I'm going to speak the truth. I'm going to continue to speak what, what I have to say. And you can call me whatever names you want. It doesn't affect me because I don't care what you think of me. I don't need your approval. Now, if that sounds cavalier, if that sounds, well, that's so arrogant, how egotistical, how could you not care what I think? Back up a couple of steps and think about what, what is being said there. Since when do you need someone else's approval to form your own convictions, to shape your innermost thoughts. 
Come on, you know the answer here. You don't. None of us needs the permission or the approval of someone else to decide which direction our conscience is going to pull us. And the sad truth is there are a lot of folks out there who have figured out that, well, you know, as long as I'm throwing these accusations around, nobody wants to be accused of being a bigot. Nobody wants to be accused of being insensitive or being racist. So they start throwing it around like some kind of a cuss word. And it's supposed to make you and I go, oh, well, hey, I'm sorry. Oh, look, I don't please don't think badly of me. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. What I'm suggesting is take their power away from them by making sure they understand. I don't care what you think of me. I don't care what you say about me. I don't care what you call me. You don't have the power to dictate what my conscience will hold to. It's an amazingly liberating thought. But it takes some tough skin. And here's the thing. You really can't fake it. It's not the kind of thing, well, I'm just going to pretend that I don't really care what you say, but then I'll go home and cry into my pillow. You actually have to be more committed to, look, I'm not going out of my way to, to make anybody, you know, anybody else's life more miserable or more difficult than it may already be. But I will not give someone permission to control me through their words. That's a conscious decision every single one of us gets to make. And once you reach the point where you actually don't care what other people are saying about you, what your critics are, are, are trying to say about you, it makes you free in a way that has to be experienced to be believed. Now, I'm telling you this because I... I went through that phase, man, when I first started doing talk radio, I remember so well, you know, my, my biggest fear, my deepest fear was, oh man, I don't want to get labeled. Oh, don't, don't let somebody label me. Cause somehow in my mind, that seemed like that was the worst thing in the world. What if somebody thinks that, you know, you're, uh, you're, uh, you know, a, a conservative or somebody thinks you're a liberal or somebody thinks you're this or somebody thinks you're that. What if somebody thinks you're stupid? Cause that's a label none of us would like. And so I played it very safe for the longest time. And I would only, I would only talk about things that were just, you know, easygoing and puppies and kittens and nobody could really disagree with, you know, just playing it safe because I didn't want to risk being criticized. And it was about as exciting as a bowl of oatmeal that's been sitting out on the table for three or four days. Yeah, really exciting. But one day there was something that came up on the air. I think it was probably gun control because that's that was something that hit a real nerve with me. This is back during the days when the so-called assault weapons ban was being debated back in 1994. And as I talked about it, I got a little bit passionate. And I spoke my mind a little too clearly. And the phones began to ring. And, you know, at the time, I was very gratified because it was mostly people calling up to agree with me. Yeah, it's about time somebody said this, you know, and then it felt good. Hey, positive reinforcement. Wow. You know, I got the dopamine release. This is really fun. But a few days later, I ran into a friend and he said, hey, I caught your radio show the other day. He goes, you're you're quite the little conservative, aren't you? And I was like, oh, man, he hit me. He got me with the label. I'm winged medic. <laughs> well, it, it took a while. And I think the hardest part 
wasn't so much the, the just the fear of the label. Oh, what if somebody labels me this or that? The toughest thing for me was actually getting to the point where I could stop parroting what somebody else was saying. In this case, Rush Limbaugh was kind of the role model, I think, for, for a lot of us in talk radio. And, and don't get me wrong, Rush had a lot of really solid things to say. He was extremely entertaining in how he said it. And so, you know, we all wanted to be the next Rush Limbaugh. But the biggest thing that made the difference in being able to, to be true to myself, be true to my principles, was to first of all sit down and sort out what exactly are my principles. Now, I know that sounds like such an obvious thing. You'd think that would have occurred to me right at the very beginning, but it didn't. I was running on borrowed light. Now, come on, if, if you're honest, a lot of us run on borrowed light because it's just easier. Who has time to sit down and research? And, and, and on top of that research, not only to dig up the facts or dig up, you know, the relevant uh, ideas, but to actually think about them, to, to cogitate, weigh them against one another. And by the way, that means that necessarily you have to encounter ideas that are going to be contrary it's easy to go search out stuff. Yeah, 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 I agree with that. And this, this seems to support my position. Wow, aren't I smart? The real test of knowing where you stand is to be able to look at opinions or ideas that are very different than your own or the ones that you're comfortable with and weigh them against your own. And honestly look and see, is there something of value here? Is there, is there, a, is there a kernel of truth here? that could add to my understanding of the world around me or add to my understanding of what I stand for and who I am. So I'm not going to pretend that, yeah, it's just the easiest thing in the world. You just figure out what you stand for and boom, everything becomes easier. It does become easier, but I'm telling you, getting there requires sincere effort. It requires contemplation. And I would add to that contemplation. I'm not just talking about, you know, sitting down with textbooks and contemplating what's on their pages. That's part of it. But part of that contemplation, at least for me, uh, was of a spiritual nature. Why am I here? Is there something that, uh, that God would expect me to do with my life or would, would want me to do with, with the, the gifts or the abilities or, or even the, the passions that he's given me? Those are the kind of questions I had to answer. And it took time. And I made, I made errors along the way. And sometimes I looked like a complete fool. And sometimes I still do. But along the way, when you have fought the battle and realized that, you know what? The biggest opponent I'm facing isn't the Democrats. And it's not the Republicans. And it's not the Libertarians. And it's not the person who calls in and, and disagrees or the, the anonymous commenter who savages whatever I've written online. The biggest opponent I have to face down is me. And it's the reason I'm my biggest opponent is because sometimes I have to sort out, am I more attached to my beliefs and my desire to appear right than I am to seek out the truth and incorporate it into my life wherever I find it? I'm speaking from experience here. That is a hard thing to do. But when you reach the point where you are more committed to searching out and incorporating truth into your life than you are just simply clinging to your beliefs You've won the toughest battle. You don't have to prove anything to anybody. So let them call you Pisher. 
Let them call you racist. Let them call you, you know, a malcontent or a seditionist or whatever it is that they want to hurl at you. Those are the words of people who have not figured out how to offer you something more powerful than the truth you already have committed to in your life. Don't forget that. This is The Loving Liberty Show. I'm Brian Hyde. Thanks so much for joining me. 801-331-8113 if you'd like to call in and weigh in. So I've talked a little bit about why you shouldn't worry so much about when somebody's hurling epithets. You racist, you bigot, you Republican, you anarchist, whatever it is they're calling you. If, if it's gotten to the point where they are calling names, chances are pretty good they have run out of substance on which to uh, counter whatever the idea is that, that you're espousing. Now, with this in mind, you're hearing a lot of cries today about how the president has has been tweeting racist tweets. I like Pat Buchanan's take. This was published on LewRockwell.com. Trump fuels a tribal war in Nancy's house. So if you can look beyond the uh, the name calling, here's some of the uh, behind the scenes stuff that's happening. Trump's uh, or uh, Pat Buchanan says President Trump's playground taunt Sunday that the squad of four new radical liberal House Democrats, all women of color, should go back and help fix the totally broken and crime infested places from which they came dominated Monday's Monday morning's headlines. But as Buchanan points out, those headlines smothered the deeper story. The Democrats are today using language to describe their own leaders that is similar to the language of the 1960s radicals who denounced Democratic segregationist governors like Ross Barnett and George Wallace. Now, consider what the four women have been saying. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has accused Speaker Nancy Pelosi of attacking newly elected women of color. Hmm. Was she calling Pelosi a racist? No, protested AOC, but it sure sounded like it. AOC's chief of staff, Saikat Chakrabarti, attacked Native American Representative Sharice Davids for her vote on a Pelosi-backed bill that sent $4.6 billion in aid to the border, but lacked the restrictions on Trump policies that progressives had demanded. Chakrabarti described Davids' votes at vote rather as showing her enable a racist system adding that some Democrats seem hell-bent to do to black and brown people what the old Southern Democrats did in the 40s. The House Democratic Caucus ripped Chakrabarty. Who is this guy, and why is he explicitly singling out a Native, wom- a Native American woman of color? <laughs> At a Netroots Nation conference this weekend, African American rep Ayanna Presley declared, we don't need any more brown faces that don't want to be a brown voice. We don't need any more black faces that don't want to be a black voice. That comes close to calling members of the Black Caucus Uncle Toms. And on Monday, the president doubled down, tweeting, quote, We all know that AOC and this crowd are a bunch of communists. They hate Israel. They hate our own country. They're calling the guards along our border, the Border Patrol agents, concentration camp guards. They accuse people who support Israel as doing it for the Benjamins. Now, 
end quote. Uh, the Benjamins recalls the accusation of Somali-born Ilhan Omar of Minnesota that the Israel lobby buys the votes of members of Congress. It's all about the Benjamins, baby. Rashida Tilab of Michigan is the other congresswoman in Trump's sights. Together, the four have achieved a prominence that almost exceeds that of Majority Leader Steny Hoyer or Majority Whip James Clyburn. The four, AOC, Tlaib, Presley, and Omar, have no clout in the Democratic caucus. But because of the confrontations they've caused and the controversy they've created, they do have a massive media following. Paradoxically, Buchanan points out, their interest in winning cheers as the fighting arm of the Democratic Party coincide with the interest of Donald Trump. He entertains and energizes his base by answering in kind their attacks on him and by adopting incendiary rhetoric of his own. He's now assuming the old America love-it-or-leave-it stance in going after the four women as anti-American ingrates. They, by calling Trump a criminal, racist, and fascist for whom impeachment proceedings should have begun months ago, elate and energize the outraged left of their party. Among the presidential candidates, some have begun to side with the four, with Bernie Sanders saying Pelosi's been a little too tough on them. On Meet the Press, Bernie added, You cannot ignore the young people of this country who are passionate about economic, racial, and social and environmental justice. You've got to bring them in, not alienate them. Well, Trump's Sunday attack forced Pelosi to stand with her severest critics, and she re-elevated the race issue with this tweet. She said, when Trump tells four American congresswomen to go back to their countries, he reaffirms his plan to make America great again has always been about making America white again. End quote. Do Democrats believe that refighting the racial battles of the 1960s that were thought to have been resolved is a winning hand in 2020? Does Pelosi think that demeaning white America is going to rally white or minority Americans to Democratic banners? The race issue had already arisen in the first debate when Senator Kamala Harris called out frontrunner Joe Biden for befriending segregationist Senate colleagues in the 70s and 80s and for colluding with them to block court-ordered busing to achieve racial balance in public schools. Pat Buchanan says, observing the clash between Trump and these women, the rank and file of the Democratic Party, are being forced to take sides. Now, many will inevitably side with the fighters as Democratic moderates appear timid and tepid. But the point here is Trump is driving a wedge right through the Democratic Party between its moderate and militant wings. With his attacks over the last 48 hours, Trump has signaled whom he prefers as his opponent in 2020. It's not Biden. It's the squad. Sunday, Pelosi recited again her mantra, diversity is our strength, unity is our power. It sounded less like a proclamation than a plea. We see the diversity, says Buchanan. Where is the unity? That's an interesting take. Also, one other thing, there was a a great column by Jeff Minnick published yesterday on intellectualtakeout.org. Why did the cries for impeachment suddenly go silent? Now, here's a fair question. He says, from the moment Donald Trump raised his right hand and took the oath of office for the presidency, Democrats in Congress, never Trumpers, many in the media and various groups of private citizens have sought his impeachment. He says, daily have I come online to the various news sites I frequent and find some member of Congress or some editorial writer calling for the head of Donald Trump. 
Here in Front Royal, Virginia, a small group of citizens, many of them in the upper age bracket, have gathered every Wednesday at the gazebo in the town square to wave placards demanding that Trump be forced out of office. And he says the rancor of these people stems in large part from Hillary Clinton's shocking defeat at the hands of a man they regard as a buffoon. Possessing no evidence to justify impeachment, they've instead followed the maxim of uh, Lavrenti Pavloch Beria, the infamous head of Stalin's secret police. Show me the man and I'll show you the crime. They were certain that if they just kept digging, they would find the dirt on Donald Trump. And now for the past 10 days or so, silence. The headlines about impeachment that popped up with the regularity of my morning coffee have disappeared. And Minnick says those shrieking for the removal of Donald Trump from the Oval Office have fallen silent. The editorials demanding the president be brought to trial have gone missing. This week, the protesters who grouped themselves around the gazebo are nowhere to be seen. And he asks, what happened? For the entirety of this presidency, we've been told that the sitting president of the United States is a Nazi, a fascist, a budding dictator, a far right wing bandito out to destroy America, a racist, a misogynist. Well, before the 2018 campaign, some Democratic candidates for Congress swore they would impeach Donald Trump and end his reign of terror. And yet here we are almost a year after the election, that election rather, and Donald Trump is still the chief executive officer of the United States of America. If, as some some have contended, he's guilty of treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors, as stated in the Constitution, then is the House not derelict in its duty by its failure to vote on impeachment? Or has something changed? Could it be that President Trump has undergone some sort of alteration? No. He is, as usual, brash, sometimes abrasive, moving ahead in his agenda. Could it be that Democrats in the media have reversed course, seeing the positive side of President Trump and his administration, appreciating his abilities in handling the economy and foreign affairs? (laughs) Well, Jeff Minnick says, whatever your political party, you probably smiled reading that question. His enemies continue to pound away on Trump. Only now they leave the word impeachment out of the fight. Or could it be that the Democrats and their allies in the press wised up to the fact that if they should impeach Trump, then the American people, the ones who voted for him and the others who are sick of Capitol Hill's political gamesmanship, might turn on them in the coming elections? Is that why they've stilled their voices? Jeff Minnick says that seems the likeliest of possibilities. Whatever the case, he says all those who have clamored for impeachment and who now have quietly abandoned the idea should be branded as either traitors or political opportunists. If they sincerely believed Trump guilty of misconduct as president, then their patriotic duty would demand that they begin impeachment proceedings, regardless of a forthcoming election. But he points out if, on the other hand, they were bandying about impeachment in a frivolous way, seeking votes or simply attempting by any means possible to undermine the work of the president, then we should regard them as grandstanding clowns who have no real interest in real governance. Hmm. He concludes by saying after all the months of hullabaloo about taking down the president, the silence of these critics speaks volumes about their true intentions. Now, if you heard uh, Jeff Minnick's words and you thought, boy, he sure is a guy who's carrying water for Trump, I would ask you, go back through and, and read that again. I'll link it in the show notes on the podcast. He's just pointing out some inconsistencies in those who've been calling for impeachment. I wonder if he's right.
timely, credible, thoughtful discussion without the partisan outrage. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network.